Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have your word open before us. Please help us to be those who are quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. Lord, please humble us tonight under your words and give us a humble boldness to accept your word planted in us, which saves us and heals us and restores us. Please, Lord, would you speak powerfully tonight through Mike? Would you give him the right words to say? Would you apply your word to our lives that we might better follow you? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Well, good evening, everybody. Stand slightly. Thank you. So yesterday we were learning how to read the Bible. Uh, Jit was uh, leading us in that. And then Adam outlined the Bible's introduction, Genesis. We heard about some of the Bible's major themes. And we also heard the first moves in the overarching story of God's engagement with the world. Uh, a story which has been called by scholars Salvation History. Um, when I was first uh, listening to kind of um, people speak about, um, uh, about uh, the meta-narrative, the big storyline, I thought it was all just kind of, you know, sort of postmodernist claptrap. But when you think about it, the story is the most important way in which we explain ourselves to somebody else. If, um, if, somebody, if somebody invites you to dinner and says, well, tell us about yourself, you will end up telling the story of your life or the story of your day. Um, when you go to an interview, uh, somebody will say, tell us what you think about this, but give us, give us instances, give us experiences that you have to explain that. Uh, when you read uh, the newspaper or you, um, or you switch on the television, it's the stories that you're really interested in not just because they're more enjoyable, but because they speak of meaning, of reality, of how the world is for that person. They speak heart to heart. And the story of God at work throughout the ages with his people becomes our story. It's not just a meta-narrative that we try and shoehorn our, um, our uh, understanding of the world into. It is part of the the huge story that our story is a small and current part. I'm going to look a little bit more at that in a moment, um, but you'll see that at the beginning of the appendix, so that's page 23, you'll see a little map of the story of God. Um, it starts high, it drops very low in the fall, and then it builds up to the climax through Christ's arrival and then into eternity. And underneath, I've given you the bullet point headings, the chapters of the story of God's engagement with the world. Well, we've seen three of them already. I'll come back to that in a second. Before I come to that, um, we've, we've read Genesis, the first book. So if you want to get your Bibles out, you flick over the first book, and you come to the second one, 
which is Exodus, which starts on page, um, page 58. Okay, so you might as well just have your Bible open. It's not going to be words coming up on the screen tonight. We're going to go from the book. So keep it open, and you can be, you'll be able to flick through it as we go on through this first half of the evening. So we're looking at Exodus. This is the second book, the second stage, the second chapter of the story. And it plunges right into the heart, the, the significance, the meaning of this story of God and his people. It brings us to the most significant action in the Old Testament, the event which formed the core of Jewish identity and their relationship with their God. Exodus. It's a Greek word meaning the journey out. And if you've watched Moses, Prince of Egypt, you know exactly what that's all about. Well, over the course of the next two days, we've got, or the next uh, four days, we've got 66 books to get through. And only three of the nine sessions to come, okay, only three of the ten sessions, including yesterday, um, do we focus on a single book. So yesterday we had the book of Genesis, that's the introduction, and right at the end, on the last day, we'll have Revelation, that's the culmination, the end. And there's only one other book that we've given a whole session to, and that's now, that's Exodus, and that tells you something of how relatively important this book is in the story of the Bible. So just before we start, why don't you turn to the person next to you and tell them, share with them, share together what you already know about the Exodus. If it's nothing at all, that will be very easy. And if it's loads and loads, you'll get a little bit out before I bring you to a close. Just share with one another what you already know about the Exodus and what your main questions are that you would like to be answered as you think about Exodus. Well, you're still going strong. That's a really good sign, okay? So I'm not building on ignorance here. There's already lots you already know about Exodus. So if we think first, about, first of all about genre, we were hearing about that yesterday. Genre is the, the style of writing, what kind of writing it is. So is this a telephone directory or is this a love poem? What kind of writing is it that we're reading? If we're thinking about that, then Exodus forms a bridge between... Genesis and Leviticus. So Genesis and the first half of Exodus are oral history. 
At some point, much later on, they're going to be written down. Unlike Genesis, the first half of Exodus is focusing on the life of one man, Moses, from the moment of his birth through to that point, uh, two-thirds of the way through his life, um, when he brings his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and to the mountain of God, to Sinai. And the rest of Exodus is more like Leviticus, and, and in fact, in Exodus, it's kind of like a PCC briefing paper, okay? So tonight, we're going to be talking about uh, how we can work and worship together as a community, and we're going to have some bullet point headlines about how we're going to do that. Uh, and there's going to be more details coming in our next uh, PCC meeting, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which you'll hear about later in the evening. I know it's easier and more enjoyable to read the history. It's got a gripping pop, it's got a gripping plot, it's got some great characters, it's very moving. It's a great deal harder to read a schedule of community rules, but they turn out to be absolutely crucial if you're a community trying to live together. The story on its own is not enough. You then need some other things as well. So that's what we're going to be hearing about tonight. First the story, and then the schedule of community um, expectations. Okay, so what's the context of Exodus? Uh, this is the second book of the Old Testament, clearly, the Jewish scriptures. It forms part of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. Pentateuch is uh, Greek, meaning five, uh, five laws, five books. As it's called in the Jewish canon, it's the Torah, the law. And obviously you're going to be hearing more about that in the next session. In the Exodus, it seems as if the hero is the Hebrew leader Moses. He's the kind of guy who, you know, the plot, plot hinges around, who takes us through the story. But in fact, the prime mover of Exodus is not Moses. He's a responder. The prime mover, the subject of Exodus is God himself. So for all its historical storytelling, Exodus isn't merely a history. It's not words about our past only, but it's also theology, words about our God. We're going to come on to the theology in a moment, and we'll look at that in three different ways. Salvation history, I've spoken about before, the big picture. Biblical themes, the DNA running through the Bible. And in particular, the double helix of covenant and kingdom. But Exodus is also history. Many books of ancient theology uh, at the same kind of time as uh, the Bible was being written were creation stories and myths about gods. And they were only loosely linked to history. But the Old Testament and the New Testament that follows are specifically and intentionally anchored in the actual historical experiences of a people who become a nation. The Bible is threatened as no other, um, no other religious book is by the accusation that it is historically inaccurate. Because hist history is fundamentally important to the Bible. God has chosen to reveal himself, firstly, in his historical dealings 
with his chosen people, Israel, and then fully through the historical experience of his Son, both human and divine, Jesus Christ. Well, that's the historical background. What about the author, the authorship of Exodus? Well, I mentioned that Genesis and Exodus are actually oral histories. The Hebrews hadn't got any writing at the time that of, of the Exodus. So they passed their, peop their people's history from one generation to the next orally through stories that they told to each other. And at some point, those oral narratives were transcribed, obviously after written Hebrew had been formulated and when the Jewish na nation was settled. So the dating issues are a little blurred and they're quite complex. And scholarship is constantly grappling with these difficult questions and there are no clear-cut answers. The trouble is archaeology almost never gives you a precise reference to a work of literature, of history at the same time. And um, thinking about the kind of nations around, emperors don't usually mention the names of escaping slaves, even if they knew them. However, current best guess seems to be that the Exodus took place between 1300 and 1250 BC in the reign of Ramesses II and was written down about 600 years after that. Now, please don't confuse, as we're inclined to do um, in this day and age, don't confuse oral history with folk tales or fables. Just because very ancient communities um, couldn't write doesn't mean to say that they didn't know if specific events actually happened to their people or not. And they don't just change their stories to suit their own storytelling. Deuteronomy 6-7 shows us how important that the Hebrew people saw the job of accurately remembering and passing on what they knew. God says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. This is really important. Pass it on carefully. And there's certainly plenty of research into the accuracy of oral narrative handed on by pre-literate communities. But what was the author of Exodus trying to say through the oral narrative as he wrote it down for us? Okay, so here is the theology. Firstly, let's just look at salvation history, the big picture. So the story so far from Genesis, we've got God creating the world. Okay, this is speaking to us not just of the, uh, of the reality of the world created, but of the meaning behind it, of the power and the imagination and the love um, and the generosity of God who fills all in all, but who removes himself in order to create something other than him. That thought, that understanding, that insight of the Hebrew people into creation of the world is totally different from all the other kinds of religious explanations for the beginning of the world. And it will inform the whole of the story onwards. It's all built on the all-powerful, all-generous, all-imaginative, creative love of God. Generously giving life to people, people whom he forms in his image, people who can, who can understand, who can um, be in relationship with him, people who, like him, can create. But these people, 
God gives an amazing gift. It's the gift freely to love, to choose to love, choice. It's not something we've ever been able to do in our creating, except when we, like God, create life. We give choice, but that choice allows not only the choice to love and to relish and to enjoy relationship, but also to choose the opposite, to choose one's own way, to choose one's own um, agenda, to distance, to reject, to hate. So that makes this whole storyline that we're going to be building up over the next few days, that makes it much more complicated. God gives life and love and freedom. Man chooses, not God, but himself to have relationship with and therefore discovers to his tragic um, dismay that once he has bitten the apple, the apple can't be unbitten. It can't be unswallowed. The choice has been made. Relationship with God is broken and rejection gives rise to judgment. So as I say, that makes it all much more complicated because God, the creator, is not willing for mankind, his beloved creation, to remain alienated and separate from him. And so he begins this whole storyline plot which will become so important throughout the Bible as he begins to work out how it can be that this man who has broken relationship with him can be brought back into relationship. And at the end of Genesis, he makes a promise that it will be so. This promise, this covenant, as Adam was saying yesterday, will shape the rest of the story. Now, today, in Exodus, we have the next two steps in the storyline. And the first is... Things have gone wrong. They've got worse and worse and worse. Sin goes on working its way through the dough, through, through the texture of human choices and history. Blessing becomes curse. God's chosen people who were moved into another land in order to be blessed now find themselves enslaved by another people, given hard labor, threatened with racial destruction. So God steps in. He demonstrates that he has got the power to act in freedom. He's unstoppable by pretend gods or by political powers. He liberates his people from their slavery and leads them into the land he has promised to them. So salvation is the fourth step in this story of God. And the fifth is that these people who have been rescued need to learn how to live together. They need to undo the choice for themselves in that second step, they need to learn how to live together. And God ushers them in that direction by offering, him, offering them his law. That's what we're going to hear about next, but it's introduced in Exodus. God gives a, gives a code of conduct to frame relationships with one another. He starts simply, as we know, with the ten memorable and powerful rules or boundaries for community conduct and then he moves them on. So just a quick break, turn to the person next to you, see how many of the Ten Commandments you can recite together.
Okay, drawing it to a close. David's busy cheating there. Actually, it's not cheating because the Word of God is powerful. And if you can't remember it, you need to read it. So learn a lesson here. If you didn't manage to get all ten, God thinks you should go away and read them and learn them and start to live by them. Okay, so that's the big picture. Let's look at the themes running through the Bible. Exodus picks up lots of the themes that were introduced in Genesis, but three stand out as fundamental as themes of the book of Exodus. The first is that God alone is God. The creator isn't just one of many gods who just one day have to have a good idea of creating the world, as happens in some of the other religious uh, writings of the time. No, there is no other God. There is no other God but God. He alone can create, so nobody else could do it instead. Nobody can prevent him acting as he chooses. God is unstoppable. His conflict with the political world of Egypt in Exodus and its declared divine underpinnings is a demonstration for all time that neither religion nor political regime has any authority or power to prevent God acting. No other statement was as revolutionary as that in the ancient world, or indeed today in our postmodern pluralistic world. There is only one God. That is the message of Exodus. Second theme, God sets free. Because God is God alone, because God alone is God, he alone has authority to commit himself to a covenant, which he did in Genesis. And this he has chosen to do. And no one can stop him delivering on his covenant promise. All the pharaohs of Egypt can stand against him and they will not prevail. God's chosen people, yes, they're enslaved and they cannot free themselves, but God, in covenant, chooses to do what his people cannot. He does what is necessary to liberate them and he promises to lead them forward into blessing. Thirdly, God sets the standards. In the same way, there's no other God to set the standard of behavior in relationship. And naturally, God sets behavior standards which is in conformity with his own character. So how very blessed we are that God, the only God, we have no other God to set aside, to set aside him. We have no other God to choose instead of him. How amazingly blessed that this only God has a fundamental character of love. And blessed indeed are we that the standards of behavior that God expects, that he sets, flow from his covenanted love, God's choice to bless others. So this is made crystal clear when God gives his Ten Commandments. His first words in Exodus 20, verse 2, are, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That is the basis on which all my other commands stand. And so you shall have no other God but me. Not, I am the most powerful being in creation, you will have no other God but me. Not, I will beat you into a pulp if you don't agree with me, you will have no other God but me. But, I am the God who has brought you out of slavery. You will have no other God but me. 
Here is the covenant. Here is the promise. Here is the relationship which I invite you to choose into based on my generous love for you. It's the fact of God's intervention to liberate the Hebrew slaves, which is the basis on which he articulates covenant behavior expected of these new, these, this people, this new nation, as they become his people. I have saved you, so honor me and be nice to each other. Okay, so just looking in, digging into covenant and kingdom, this bipolar theme of kingdom and covenant is also particularly strong in Exodus. Kingdom, what God does. Covenant, who he chooses to be towards us. Kingdom, doing what God does from our point of view. Covenant, becoming more one with God. Kingdom, the first half of Exodus of the book, a powerful description of God at work. Calling Moses at the burning bush, giving Moses his staff and turning into a serpent um, and then back again. The ten plagues which God sends at Moses' word, compelling Pharaoh's angry compliance, parting the Red Sea, the provision in the wilderness of fresh water, quail and manna to eat. Exodus 14, 31 could act as a summary of the kingdom theme. And when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Kingdom. And covenant, chapter 19. The focus shifts from action to relationship. Moses has brought the people to the foot of the mountain of God at Sinai, and the action is going to continue again halfway through the book of Numbers and move on from Sinai. But for now, our attention is on the covenant relationship between God and the people he's rescued. The dilemma is that God is overwhelmingly powerful and holy, and those who enter his presence without protection would be consumed. But God wants relationship. And so he appoints protections, boundaries, places of meeting, ways of preparing, intermediaries through whom he will speak with his people. Well, the people readily agree to all of these protections, to this intermediary, agreeing for Moses to speak to God for them so that they aren't destroyed. I'm sure they were very concerned for Moses' safety. So God reveals to Moses his Ten Commandments, and then he reconfirms his covenant with Israel. Exodus 24, verse 7. Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Adam was saying yesterday that the first covenant was principally about a people, God's chosen people becoming a nation, a place, God's people living in their promised land, Canaan, and worshipping in the place of God's choosing, and a blessing, God's blessing upon his chosen people, and his blessing through them on the nations of the world. People, place, Blessing. In Exodus 20, uh, chapter 20, and all the chapters following, a bunch of slaves with no common bond but their joint suffering and their ex unexpected liberation are taught to live together as a people. Here they are, becoming a people, the people of God. You who are not a people, said Hosea much later, have become my people. Exodus 19 and following is located in a place a mountain chosen by God, and speaks of the lands which will be theirs, and specifies a movable place in which to worship while they're still stumbling along their journey to their promised land. 
a blessing? Well, God has already blessed them with salvation, with protection and with provision. But now he hints also at the new blessings of a stable and a prosperous community life. Exodus 23, 25. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and your water. I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. Okay, so that's the introduction. Now let's look through the book. Let's see how Exodus fits in with Genesis and the rest of the Torah. Let's take a quick look through it chapter by chapter to explore some of its sub-themes. So first sub-theme, God judges. The first chapter, chapter 1 to 2, verse 23, is the context of the story that's to come. Things have gone wrong. They have gone bad. What has started off in Genesis as blessing, rescue from famine, has now become a curse, slavery. Time has passed. The insidious outworking of sin has showed itself in the attitude of a new pharaoh, possibly of a new ethnic background, and with different political goals, who had no connection to the gratitude and generosity of the past. So instead of trust for the Jewish people, he and his advisors knew fear and distrust. Instead of hospitality, they instituted oppression, becoming more ruthless as they became more fearful. Pharaoh tries several times to reduce their numbers. And as he tries to do that, he stands directly against God's promise to Abraham. And so it turns out God can't be thwarted and Pharaoh fails. So the Hebrew slaves are growing, not only in numbers, but also in courage and patience amid their sufferings. Like Joseph, their forebear, they're learning to trust God's promises despite and amid grim circumstances. The midwives found a way to circumvent the Pharaoh's command to kill newborn boys. Moses' mother hid him in a reed bed and entrusted him to God and Miriam. Joshua's parents called him salvation. Moses discovered that man's anger doesn't bring in the righteousness of God. And the people begin to cry out to God for rescue. So, in the purposes of God... Time is coming to its fullness. In Genesis 15, 13 to 16, when God cut his first covenant with Abraham, in the thick darkness between the the carcass halves and the torch goes through the middle, if you remember, God predicts that this people will be aliens and slaves in another country, but that he will punish their persecutors and bring them out with great possessions and lead them back to the promised land of Abraham. But not before the sins of its inhabitants, the inhabitants of Canaan, have reached their full measure. God, as we know, doesn't want anyone to be without the possibility of repentance and forgiveness. But nor, on the other hand, will he leave the accumulation of sin upon sin forever. At some point, God will enact judgment on a culture and a nation which insists on opposing him, wallowing in moral filth and idolatry and oppressing his people. Before the story of Exodus begins, God has been holding in mind several judgments against different nations. Nations whose sin appalls him. At the same time, he has been weighing up 
the behavior of the Canaanites and the Egyptians. And he's also been allowing the experience of his people to grow to the point of trust and the desire for change. And when his people are ready for rescue and the time for judgment has come, the cries of his people for salvation will find their response at last. Not wishing to make the connection with judgment or oppression, but that sense of juggling different things at the same time has been very much my experience over the last two years as I have been waiting for different things to come into place before the possibility of church planting at St. Margaret's. I needed to get to the point where the diocese was ready to think about church planting, where the deanery wanted someone like St. Jude's to do something, where St. Margaret's congregation was no longer able to continue on its own, and where I had a PCC willing and ready to support such an endeavor and a team and leader in place to do it. Five or six different things that I'd been juggling for years, and finally all came to fruition at the same time. There's something of this quality in the way that God is holding the different threads, the different um, options, the different futures of different people, waiting for the time to be right. We will see that again as all those prophetic promises are fulfilled later on down the salvation story. So the first section ends in Exodus 2, 21-2, with Moses naming his son Alien and the Israelites groaning to God in their slavery. And the second section begins with the last two verses of Exodus 2. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob, So God looked on the Israelites and had compassion on them. So God, the time is right. God is ready for judgment. God prepares, and his preparation involves a number of steps. It doesn't all happen at once. For God, action begins with hearing. And hearing, for God, leads to action. But God's action also involves preparation. We've seen this as God waited for the time of of judgment to reach its fullness, he was also preparing a people. Well, he was also preparing a leader. Moses, through this period, through God's provision, has learned the faith of his parents. He's learned the weakness of the pharaohs. He's learned the folly of violence. And he's learned the humility of patience. And now, in God's timing, he is ready to hear God's voice. In salvation history, God always chooses to use people as his agents in mission. A critical element of his readiness to act is the preparedness of the leader of his choosing. So Moses is ready to hear. And so God's first act of salvation is to reveal himself to Moses, which he does in chapters 3 to 6. We've just seen a brief glimpse of that. He catches Moses' attention with the burning bush, 3.3, declares himself holy, 3.5. He reveals himself as God of Moses' forefathers, 
3 verse 6, he announces that he's heard the cry of Moses' people and is determined to rescue them from their suffering and to bring them to a land of blessing, 3, 7 to 9. And he declares his own name, I am who I am, 3, 14. But as Moses discovers the reality of God, he also hears his own calling, 3, 10. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. It's not easy to hear calling, especially if it's significant or dangerous, and Moses fights against his with self-doubts and clarifications, just as we often fight against our own. And so the next stage of God's preparation is empowerment. God encourages Moses with promises of his action through him, with words to say and direct demonstration of his power, as Moses' stick turns to a snake and back again, as his hand turns leprous. When Moses still asserts his inadequacy for the task, asks God to send somebody else, God starts to get a little irritable and agrees to co-opt Aaron to support Moses, but he still refuses to let Moses off the hook. Moses is God's chosen agent, so Moses has to go. So he detaches himself from his father-in-law and returns to Egypt, meeting Aaron on the way and encouraging the elders of the Israelites with the news that God has heard them. The time of God's salvation has come. The next stage is God's salvation. But that, too, is not a short thing. Take five, chapters 5 to 18, it's a long process of God saving his people, not a quick or easy task. Pharaoh is most unwilling to lose his slaves and to cede supremacy to God. And the people of Israel have not yet been sufficiently convinced that God is worth trusting with their lives, which they will have to do. So in 5 to 7, Moses confronts Pharaoh with God's demands. That's the first stage, confrontation. The second is challenge. In 8 to 10, God ups the ante beyond the point where the magicians can do the same. Beyond the point where the Egyptians start to put pressure on Pharaoh to agree. To the point where Pharaoh is beginning to make concessions, yet still he won't agree to God's demands. So the next stage is breakout. Chapters 11 to 12 describing the tenth plague, the last one which finally shatters Pharaoh and causes him to drive out the Israelites from his country just as God had promised would happen. But then comes protection. Israel leaves Egypt in chapter 12 but is immediately pursued by an angry Pharaoh. So salvation now doesn't just mean liberation, it also means protection from imminent destruction. This God does in an equally dramatic way his aim to create a memory of salvation for his chosen people so vivid that it will stay in their memory for 3,000 years. The water is parted to allow the Israelites to cross and floods back to drown their pursuers. The song of Moses echoes across the centuries. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Or as they sing on Moses, Prince of Egypt, deliver us to the promised land. Would you like to see the end of that story? Deliver us to the promised land. 
God's people celebrate their escape from bondage, chapters 16 to 18, but they've not yet arrived in their promised home, and they still have many thirsty, hungry miles to go. The test of God's salvation is now his ability to provide for his people. Many a time, Israel wonder why on earth they left the barbecues of Egypt, forgetting the suffering that made them cry out to God for release. But God continues to provide miraculously for, for them sweet water from bitter, manna and quail to eat, water from the rock, as they cross the wilderness to meet him at his mountain. And in two final episodes, Joshua fights off the Amalekites while Moses lifts up his staff in prayer. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, reorganizes the Israelite middle leadership structure. So this is the first half of Exodus, God judging the nations, God preparing his leader, God rescuing his people. The second half of Exodus dramatically changes key as it changes focus and genre. God has acted, now he invites covenant relationship based on that action. And the first thing that he is doing is enabling worship. In chapter 19, God reveals something of his glory which drives his people to worship there on the mountain. The people of Israel find that worship is not a warm, comfortable emotion shared with friends. It's a fearful response to the overwhelming power of God revealed to them. The reality of God's presence allied with the acknowledgement of what he's done for them triggers both gratitude and awe, but also recognition of their unworthiness and vulnerability before such a powerful God. In fact, they're not wrong. God too acknowledges their vulnerability before him and so provides for them intermediaries who enable them to hear from him and meet with him without being distraught. The people recognize the importance of this and gratefully accept the offer. But God also offers a safe place where they can meet with him, safe ways of entering that place. Because they'll be moving on from God's mountain and on the move for the next stage of their history, the safe place will have to be movable as well. God will go with them. If they stick with him and follow him and obey him, they will be safe from all the dangers ahead. So God enables worship, but he also shapes community. And really interestingly, after God has revealed his glory and before he outlines safe ways and places for worship, right in the middle there, he homes in on the behavior that he expects, chapters 20 to 23. First, respect for relationships. He expects respect for himself, for those closest, and to others around. Next, respect for life, reflecting the unique value of that gift from him. Thirdly, respect for honesty and truth, without which relationships founder. And only finally, after all these others, the respect for other people's property. These are the required commitments from God, and they're hammered out in the Ten Commandments, and then filled out in some of the following examples. And then in chapter 24, as we heard before, the people of God are invited to reaffirm their covenant with God, now that they have received both his protection and seen his glory. Well, as we've said before, the basis which God gives for the covenant rules he requires from his people is not that he is all-powerful, but that he has already saved them. It's that he loves his people, the people he has chosen, and he wants to bless them. And it's going to be tremendously important for the people of Israel to remember that when they and their leader, Aaron, who is acting up as leader in the absence of Moses on the mountain with God, when they really mess up 
and they create something more obvious and less frightening than God. They create a golden idol, the golden calf, and attribute their rescue to this calf. If God were to leave it at that, they would never worship him again. And one day, trusting a God that is no God, they would be destroyed. So God, acting in severe kindness, shows them immediately the result of turning their back on him. And they have no defense against the plague to which they fall victim. Until Moses returns and reminds them of the implications of their covenant relationship with God. If they turn from him, they will be defenseless. But if they stay close to him, their God will be a mighty deliverer for them. The God who brought them out of Egypt with powerful miracles and wonders. Later on in Numbers, the same thing will happen again. And Moses will be uh, told by God to raise a snake, a serpent, on a stick. And when they look at the serpent, trust in God, they will be healed of their snake bites. And that connection will go leap across the salvation history story to the one who is lifted up on the cross. And if mankind will look at him, they will be healed. God alone is God. There is no one else to rescue them. His commandments are to bless and not to harm. But they need to follow him and obey him. And then they will be his people. Well, I'm just winding up now. Of all the books of the Old Testament, it will turn out that this book, or rather the story told in this book, will have the greatest impact on Jewish history. In this event, a random group of slaves are forged into a people with an identity and a destiny, chosen by God to demonstrate his power at work in history and to reveal his character and his blessing to the nations. It's in the Exodus that the Hebrew slaves discover that they are God's chosen people. It's in Exodus that they discover what it means to live together as a people worthy of God's name. The story of the Exodus will be enshrined in the yearly celebration of Yom Kippur and will underpin the theological action of forgiveness central to that day of atonement. The story will be reenacted too in the weekly Shabbat meal, which will become the principal vehicle for handing on Jewish faith and values from one generation to the next. And of course, the law presented in Exodus will be seen by Jews for millennia as their most precious gift from God and his chief blessing to the world through them. Of course, for us as Christians, the greatest of all God's gifts to the world will also come through this same chosen Jewish people. But it will not be the law, but a person, Christ, the Messiah. Yet Jesus the Christ also chose to shape his mission around the events of this book. As with Moses, Jesus' early childhood was colored by Egypt and threatened political assassination. Throughout his ministry, he found echoes of Moses' journey from Egypt to Israel. On the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember, he meets there Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And in that moment, as somebody pointed out to me recently, rather delightfully, rather wonderfully, Moses finally steps into the promised land in the presence of his Savior and ours. But above all, Jesus reinterpreted the Passover supper of Exodus 12 in his own Last Supper with his disciples. He used this as a model to speak of how he himself was leading God's new people out of slavery to sin and death 
and into eternal freedom and the promised land of new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. He would be crossing the sea ahead of them to open a new way into the presence of God, creating a new and better covenant between God and mankind. So the story of Exodus, through the Passover meal which Jesus shared with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, now underpins our own meal of Holy, Communi of Holy Communion, which we celebrated and shared together last night. I'm sorry I couldn't get the stories quite to align. And which for 2,000 years, we too have narrated and passed on the core of our faith to the next generation. And so, if you haven't yet read Exodus from start to finish, can I suggest that you go home and make a start? Shall we pray? This extraordinary, powerful story of your intervention in the life of your people still feeds us today, 3,000 years later, O oh Lord our God. 4,000 years later. We thank you for that time and every time when you intervene with power and demonstrate that you alone are God and that you love us. May we live our lives too as successors to your people and this Exodus story. In the name of and through the power of your Son, our Saviour and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.